one of the most difficult aspects of cannabis cultivation is learning how to use light at an expert level. The sun is pretty much always the same and reliable, and that's one of the reasons I prefer greenhouse growing. However, most artificial light sources traditionally used for cannabis certainly got the job done, even though they were inefficient and gave off a ton of heat. But the application of light to plants, whether it be from sunshine or electricity, actually is just one part of the skill set a cannabis cultivator needs to understand in order to perfect their craft. If you want to learn about cannabis health, business, and technique efficiently and with good cheer, I encourage you to subscribe to our newsletter. We'll send you new podcast episodes as they come out, delivered right to your inbox, along with commentary on a couple of the most important news items from the week and videos too. Don't rely on social media to let you know when a new episode is published. Sign up for the updates to make sure you don't miss an episode. Also, we give away very cool prizes to folks who are signed up to receive the newsletter. There's nothing else you need to do to win except receive that newsletter. So go to shapingfire.com to sign up and be entered into this month's and all future newsletter prize drawings. You are listening to Shaping Fire, and I'm your host, Shango Los. Today, my guest is former NASA lighting engineer, Robert Soler. Robert Soler has worked at the Kennedy Space Center, where he helped design and build the cultivation module and the first LED light for the use on the International Space Station. Additionally, he served as subject matter expert for NASA's circadian lighting system. He holds a master's degree from the Lighting Research Center at Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute and has begun a PhD in behavioral neuroscience where he received a fellowship from the National Science Foundation for Investigation in Circadian Lighting Paradigms. Robert is presently Vice President of Biological Technologies and Research at BIOS Lighting. On today's show, we're going to talk about some of the key threshold points in the relationship between the light spectrum and cannabis plants that impact all cultivators, clear up some botanical myths that persist in cannabis cultivation, and talk a bit about how working under artificial lights impacts the lives of professional indoor cultivators. Welcome to the show, Robert. Yeah, thanks for having me. Awesome, man. I know that you, uh, you're you a busy guy, and I appreciate that you take some of that valuable time and share it with us. And I really appreciate that you've got, you know, the NASA space station in your background because uh, it's an interest of mine having worked on the space shuttle program and the space station myself. And I just generally think it's really cool still. And so before we go into a lot of the more light and botanical questions I've got for you today, would you just tell us about the grow op in the space station? Yeah, um, I worked on a a uh, project called ABERS, which is an advanced biological research system um, that grew Arabidopsis. Um, so I was on the team that, that worked on that. My role is the LED lighting expert. Um, so, you know, it wasn't probably as, as sexy or, or anything that, um, that this audience cares too much about, but um, there's uh, Arabidopsis is pretty cool because it's almost like the the white mouse of, uh, of you know laboratory experiments. So um, a lot of experiments, a lot of fundamental science is done with Arabidopsis. So it's kind of kind of groundbreaking research for growing you know plants in outer space, and that's kind of evolved into you know growing you know flowers on space station, growing um, um, vegetables and and herbs on space station. So. Uh, things that are good for us, both nutritionally and, and psychologically. So, you know, when I think about the space station, I'm thinking about everything being incredibly compact. How large is the growing area? And were you finding that you were having to devise smaller versions of the technologies just to get them on the station? 
Oh, absolutely. And, and, and that's exactly what NASA loved about LED specifically was that it was small. It was, you know, you could put it in pretty much any form factor you, you wanted. It was rugged. So when it goes up on a, on a rocket or, or a Soyuz rocket, um, it's, it's going to last. It's not made of glass or anything. It's very rugged. So, um, but the, the team that we had was, um, it was basically the space flight experiment team. Um, so astronaut, I'm not sorry, astronauts, um, you know, scientists would come from all over the world and, and basically to fly their science on space station, they would come to us and we would basically develop the hardware and shrink it down to what's called a mid-deck locker sized box uh, where that experiment would run. Um, so basically you have, you know, minimal space to, um, to have all your HVAC, your cooling, your nutrient um, deployment, your lights. Um, everything was all kind of in a really, really compressed space. And uh, astronauts would be able to open it up, kind of check on everything. Um, some of them were camera-based. Um, it was all very high-tech, um, trying to get as much science as we can autonomously. Um, yeah, so yeah, and as compact as you could imagine. And of course, lightweight, because I think uh, things cost about $10,000 a pound uh, to send into space. So weight is a huge issue. Sure, sure. You, you know, I uh, I think most of us who picture plants growing in space from either movies or or just, you know, imagination, we imagine there being, you know, like a table somewhere and it's got it's got green plants growing out of it that are just kind of like in the air and sharing air with the astronauts. Yeah. Um is that how it is, or is everything all like super sealed behind plastic because every all the environments are separate? Oh yeah, they want they you don't want any cross pollination. You you everything's an experiment, so it, it's really not designed for you know life support at this point. So it's really just it wants to have its closed environment. It's gasketed off, so whatever is going on and recirculating in in this one environment doesn't doesn't co-mingle with, you know, any of the other, you know, hundreds of experiments that are going on at the exact same time. I'd assume that you guys are probably running some kind of, you know, Rockwell substrate and feeding liquid nutrition rather than any kind of living soil, which would have a ton of variables. Is that true? Oh, yeah. So it's, uh, it is, so the uh, nutrition system is all kind of predetermined some of the stuff that was um, that's recently done is is in these little pods these soil pods where um, all the nutrients is already contained in inside that and then you have to syringe in water because as you know water in microgravity doesn't doesn't go where you want it to go <laughs> uh, it goes everywhere um, so you have to have a very specific delivery system to make sure that it's getting in so so everything is very well contained um, in order for it to work Right on. So um, you also worked on the the Grow Lab at, in Antarctica, didn't you? Yeah, that's right. So um, so they were looking in. Um, it was the uh, McMurdo Sound Station um, Grow Facility. Um, they were looking to to kind of see if they could go into um, LED technology. So we did this probably about eight years ago, um, growing the the fresh fruits and vegetables that are on there. 
uh, down there in uh, Antarctica. So pretty cool. Pretty cool stuff. Yeah, that's really great, and uh, and I'm I'm sure they're thrilled to do anything to get fresh fruits and vegetables there, since everything's shipped in like a couple times a year. Probably get really really tired of whatever their version of MREs are. That's right. Yeah, yeah. yeah it was really important from a from a psychological mental stability standpoint to see something growing, to see kind of some semblance of like what's what's normal in most people's perception. Yeah. Um, right. Oh, go ahead. You know, I, I, I just think that we talked a lot about space, um, and I think there's one thing that's really fascinating about space is, you know, we look at the spectrum of light, kind of going back to the, what we're, what we're going to be talking about, but, you know, plants are hyper-efficient to, to red light, and, and we now know kind of it's a balance of red and blue, but um, one of the first discoveries about kind of phototropism is that, you know, if you grow plants in space under only red light, Plants grow in every single direction. They don't have any up or down. They just kind of, they just grow um, outward, if you will. And so just adding a little bit of blue light gives them some orientation so that they'll actually grow up towards the light because otherwise they have really no um, understanding. There's no gravity. There's no buoyancy to, to kind of tell them what's up and down. Um, in fact, blue light tells them which way to go. And I think that that's a really interesting story as we kind of think about, you know, how we deliver blue light um, here on earth and in uh, more normal cultivations. Yeah. And, and maybe even strategically how it could be used, you know, maybe, uh, and I don't know this to be true. I'm just positing here, but like, you know, maybe red light will give you a, a shorter, bushier plant that's growing out, whether, uh, whereas feeding it more blue light will make it more erect it is, I don't know if that's true, but, but I bet you there's lots of people researching that right now. That's right. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's actually kind of the opposite. Um, blue light is kind of the, the natural signal for, for more light availability. So when you're depleted of blue light, uh, plants will actually grow out longer and, and stemmier to try to in search for kind of more light availability. And so, um, so it's actually a blue depleted light will, will create a longer stemmier, um, kind of lanky looking, uh, plant. Uh, so, so that's uh, generally why a lot of the strategies are around kind of a blue enriched um, early in the early stages of plant growth. Right on. So let's go ahead and make our transition to the, the, the stuff that I um, asked you to, to come and join us with. Because while, you know, you are a, an LED specialist for both, you know, your company, BIOS, and formerly for NASA, the things that, that I've heard you uh, interview about, which I'm most interested, is actually the relationship between the light, no matter its source, and the plant as a living organism. And, you know, this time of year, a lot of people have got um, transition concerns from taking their plants from the indoors and moving them outdoors. And so a lot of us are talking about uh, light cycles. So let's go ahead and start there. Let's go ahead and start there. So indoors, the lights are weaker than the sunshine but the day is usually longer before because most folks have their lights on 18.6 or 24.0 to help get them established and, and getting growing before they go outside. Yet, so often when the plants go outside into the more intense sunshine, but, you know, this time of year, depending on where you are in the country, it's about 15.9, they start to flower for a lot of people. And we know there's clearly a relationship between the day length, the light intensity, and flowering. 
But, you know, for so many of us, we try to figure out where that threshold is to cause flowering so we can better manage our cultivation. So somewhere in there between like taking a plant from 18.6 and bringing it out outside to 15.9, somewhere in there, there is the threshold where Oh, now, now your plants you brought outside are going to go into flower versus, oh, your, your plants transitioned outside without flowering. Can you kind of like teach us a bit about that so that we can make better uh, cultivation management decisions? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it comes down to exactly what you're saying. I mean, the, I, I think the interaction with light intensity is, is an interesting one. Um, but I, you know, the evidence points that photo period really drives, you know, all of that kind of seasonal cue of when to start flowering. So, you know, plants are basically going to strategize around taking all the energy from the summer months. They see a long day. They think of it as a summer month. Well, then when you shorten that period, that photo period, it's thinking it's going to interpret that information as, okay, now the seasons have changed and this is fall. And this is the time where I'm going to take all the energy that I've created, that I've harvested from the summer months and convert it into flowers. Um, so it really is that transition from a long day to a short day. Um, so as long as um, what you see, so if 15.9 is what you get outside, um, and that was compared to, you know, uh, 18.6, as you said before, um, that, that might elicit a flowering event. If it was 15.9 inside and 15.9 outside, it won't. So I think that when you, you know, if you think about how you want to do this when you convert from inside to outside, think about what that photo period is going to be when you take it outside. Um, and do you want to, you know, elicit flowering at that time or not? And if you don't, you want to basically um, set that time period inside to be similar to a photo period that you're going to see outside. Well, the million dollar question, of course, is what is the similar, right? So if 18.6 to 15.9 is very much going to be a precipitous drop to cause flowering, how close to 15.9 would you say we want to get to be sure that we're not going to lose our clones by suddenly kicking them off? Well, so, um, so what you, I mean, what you want to do is, um, you really want to make sure that you, you hit it all the way, right? So uh, usually what people do is, is a 12-12. Um, so, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a relative difference. But I think that if you really want to do it, if you really want to initiate flowering, it's a 12-12 is what you kind of want to shift over to. But I do think, um, you know, there's going to be something really interesting. So there's, you know, hacks that get you all over the place. But I think that... Um, what I've seen, at least in the literature, is that, you know, different strains come from different regions and their seasonalities are different. So um, what's going to change, uh, initiate the, the flowering response for one species uh, might be different than another species. So I think that really there are ways to, you know, if you want to elicit flowering, 12-12 is going to do it. Um, if you want to kind of play with the, the different thresholds, I think that that's, um, that's something that's really interesting to see how those impacts, how those um, photo period effects are going to change, you know, the product that you that you put out. I think the idea of where the cultivar is from is a really interesting idea. The equatorial strains of cannabis may well 
you know, have different lighting responses than the, you know, the mountainous ones or the Pakistani Valley ones. Um, Let me ask you the question in a slightly different way, though, because normally for most of us who are coming outside right now, we're not trying to um, cause them to flower as we take them outside, because really we're going to let the we're going to let the natural world. Yeah, yeah, we're going to let them do it. And, you know, depending on where we live in the country and the, you know, the cultivar, it'll all start kicking in around, you know, mid ish of August. Right. So yep. for most of us, we're, we're taking, you know, 12, 18 inch plants outside now, and we want them to veg for another couple months and, and double or triple in size or more, um, before it flowers. So, so, you know, I tell people, you know, if you can try to have your flowers at 15, nine, before you take them outside. And the problem is, is like almost nobody does that because a lot of people, they'll, they'll start their, they'll, they'll pop their seeds or start their clones at 24-0 um, or many people at 18-6. But then the time from when they start their plants at 18-6 and suddenly they're going outside at 15-9, you know, it's hard to step down that far. I mean, for myself, I try to step them down, you know, about a half hour a week. So that after after I've I've had them inside for um, you know a month or six weeks, I've brought it down two or three hours. But every time I drop it down a half hour, I'm like concerned that I'm going to accidentally flower them indoors. So yep. with with overlooking that whole challenge, where do you think it's best for us to to to? to play with our particular cultivars. Do you think that they think that it's going to be more effective for us to, you know, start the plants on a shorter day or do a step down, or maybe instead of taking them out at 159, maybe we take them out at, at, at 17, seven. And like, you're like, ah, eh, two hours isn't going to matter. So, so like where, where in that variable process are the ones that you think we're most likely to find success, you know, jiggering with? Yeah. I, I mean, I really do think that, uh, as I mentioned before, some of these species may be a little bit more sensitive than others. Um, so, so how you, um, you know, I, there's not one answer that's going to cover all of them, but really what I would say is to try to match. So start with a shorter photo period indoors is the way that I would absolutely do it. Cause as you step it down, as you said, you know, those little steps might initiate a flowering event. And if that's not the outcome that you want, um, then you've just, you know, kind of ruined your whole crop. So, so what I would do is I would um, absolutely keep the photo period as closely matched to that, the time that you expect to go outdoors. So you're suggesting maybe just kind of like get off the myth that's normally for, you know, traditional prohibition era indoor growers where they're like, oh, 24, 18, 6, 12, 12, right? Because, because, you know, when you're, when you're running lights, you can, you're God, right? You can do anything you want. Whereas sure. if, if the plan is to go outside, maybe just pop, pop your seeds or make your clones at 16 hour days. And even though you're running your lights a little less long, um, you will make up for that in having clear headed knowledge that when you go outside, your plants are going to be safe. That's right. Hmm. That, that would be my, that would be my recommendation. And and the reality is, you know, the energy expenditure is pretty much the same. Um, I think that, you know, yeah, I'll speak only on led lighting, led lighting could, could hit those light levels, 
um, to because you still want to hit the DLIs, the your daily average um, light intensity, um, the integral of the light over the the photo period. So you want to in order to go to that that sixteen eight. Um, you're going to have to use higher light levels in order to still get the, the growth that you want. Um, Meaning intensity and, of light. Yeah, that's got, right. Got it. Um, so, so most of these, you know, with, with some of the old, you know, hypersodium metal halides, you know, you, you get what you get. There's no, there's no ideas of dimmers or any ways to, to reduce lights or, you know, do anything like that. But with LEDs, you have infinite dimmability capabilities. Um, some of these things are pushing out, you know, 1750 micromoles um, per second. So it's, you know, these things are getting really impressive in, in light output. So you could you could crank up the light levels. Your energy expenditure is going to be pretty much the same uh, because, you know, you're using the same amount of energy over a shorter period of time. All right. So this plays in right into <clears throat> a question. This is probably the question I was most excited about asking you today. Um, and it's about the 24 hour light cycle. And it's, it's always interesting to watch folks who are, who are growing outdoors versus indoors and how we were taught by our mentors. And then nowadays when, when indoors and outdoors and people are going back and forth because it's, it's generally safer to grow in both in, you know, both environments. Um, there's kind of a clash of of myth and and what people were learned. And one of the most watched videos on the Shaping Fire YouTube channel is an interview I did, just a quick one I did with uh, Dr. Karuna Chaure, explaining that the 24-hour light cycle is not beneficial for plants because without a dark period, microbes in the soil will starve because it's during this dark period that the plants feed the microbes in the rhizosphere with their exudates. They, you know, they push them down through the roots. This was the first time I really considered the give and take between the plants and the microbes. And for so many people, they run, especially in hydro, they'll just run their plants 24 hours um, to have the plants grow faster. And for many people, they actually can sneak another cycle in their year because the plants grow about 20% faster with a 24-hour light cycle and no break. But <clears throat> Dr. Chowry was very clear, like, you know, you are growing plants faster, but you are growing plants that are weaker because you don't have strong microbes and this back and forth before the plants don't work as well. Um, but again, my, my talk with her was only about eight minutes. So, so does this sound like this makes sense to you that the plants need this dark period? And, and if so, what do you see happening to benefit the plant during the dark that is so essential? Yeah. Um, so I'm a light nerd, but I'm also a circadian nerd, uh, which means that there needs to be a 24 hour cycle and plants respond to a, a 24 hour cycle. Um, which means that it has to be both light and dark. So, you know, cell respiration occurs in darkness. A lot of beneficial things occur during darkness. So um, I think that there's a lot of things that we probably don't know. I, you know, I'm, I'm not a plant physiologist. I'm a, you know, a lighting uh, scientist. But um, so, you know, the, the idea of having a light and dark period is going to drive the circadian of that plant. Um, so, so I think wholeheartedly that we need to really uh, respect that, that dark period. And if it's two hours 
uh, at a minimum, I would like to at least see um, the idea of 24-0 going to at least 22-2. Um, and again, as I kind of mentioned before, there's infinite expandability with, with the newer LED lighting technologies that, um, that could allow for the same kind of grow rates because um, you could just have higher light outputs and still have some sort of a dark period. Now, I think the idea of the, um, of, you know, microbial um, interactions is, is really interesting. Um, but I think that there is going to be a lot more going on in that plant that's dictated by that light-dark cycle um, that is really, you know, it always comes back to what, what nature's doing, right? Um, there's not too many environments that are 24-0. And so, um, so plants have evolved around a, an environment that's both light and dark. And so the better we could do with that, the better off your plant's going to be as a result. I think that um, my testament would be that that you should strive to do that as much as you possibly can. That's interesting. That actually even expands what I what I feel like I want to continue to look into, which is not you're saying that yeah, this is probably all true with the microbes in the rhizosphere. That makes sense, but also there are unique botanical. I don't know, housekeeping that happens during the dark period that the plant needs itself. It's not like a, like a, you know, just a photosynthesis machine and you just turn it on and it runs infinitely. It too needs to take out the garbage and do cell, uh, you know, transpiration and, and these other things that it does during the, the dark period. Yeah. I mean, there's, um, there's some, species of plant that will, um, you know, co-evolve with its predators and will change its um, nutritional content over the course of the day so that it, you know, quote unquote, tastes yuckier to um, plants or to um, uh, its Pests, predators. Yeah. yeah. And then um, there are plants that will co-evolve with their, their pollinators so that they'll, you know, emit some odors to, to kind of attract pollinators at a very specific time. And so there's all these things that happen over the course of the day, biologically speaking, and without a dark period, um, that plant's going to have no reference for when the day starts and when the day ends. Um, so I think that we're probably going to find out that there's some interesting things that, that are happening as a result. I think that historically, though, the, you know, it's always been one parameter. So you get longer hours, you get more light. Um, you get better growth, but if you were to compress that same amount of light from 24 hours into, you know, a shorter photo period and just increase the intensity of the lights, um, I think you're going to get a better response. Right on. That makes a lot of sense. So, <clears throat> so let's move on to a, a, a different line of thought, but still talking about light and dark periods. So, <clears throat> so indoor cultivators are very careful not to let light hit their plants during the dark period. And for some, that means simply not entering the grow room. For others, it means duct taping any holes in their indoor tents. And for outdoor folks, it means not turning on the floodlights off the back of the house at night, right? But yep. <clears throat> how do we know how much light leakage will actually impact a crop? Where's the threshold of where the interruption will cause, you know, the plant's biological confusion? Yeah, um, that's a that's a great question. I mean, um, you know, I don't I don't know that there's a real threshold. Um, I, I gather that it's actually not that not that low. 
Um, it's not like, uh, you know, the, you know, a small incandescent light is going to really do a whole lot. You know, the, the likely light leakage, um, if it's minimal coming through the cracks is going to be that much. But I do think that, you know, general practice to make the night environment as dark as possible is a good thing. Um, I don't think that there'll be biological confusion, but it may, you know, halt cell respiration. It may help halt some of the nighttime activities, um, which are, are going to be vital to, um, to the success of that crop. So if we were to think about which would be worse, like, you know, um, the, the intensity of the interruption of dark or the length of the interruption of dark, um, I want to know if you have anything to, to, to say about that. So in, in comparison, say walking into your, like, let's say, you know, your sister-in-law is in town and she walks into your grow room and turns on the light and during the dark period. And suddenly now there's, you know, there's all these uh, bulbs that are on and she's like, oh, I'm not, this is not the room I'm supposed to be on in. And so she turns off the light. So it was short, maybe 10, 12 seconds, but it was a whole bunch of, uh, you know, uh, shop lights that may have come on versus yep. say a tent that's got a handful of like pin prick holes in it. Right. So you've got this tiny, tiny amount, but it's in your living room. So it's constant. Right. So, yep. so, um, are they both potentially troublesome or really does because perhaps some hormone or something needs to build up in the plant, the short burst really isn't going to do anything. And it's more what happens over the longer term. Um, it, you know, it's both. Um, so the, uh, so the plant will acclimate. So if the dark period is, you know, that constant day, you know, that constant like threshold, low threshold day in, day out, um, it's going to acclimate to that as being kind of the standard for what nighttime is, um, as opposed to the bright light may um, may alter it for that one night, and you know maybe it will it'll actually shift the clock um, to to maybe like a, a quote unquote different time zone for the next day. But after about two or three days, it's going to come right back to it. Um, so that single event is probably in in both cases neither one's really that bad um it's really just kind of if you you know if you do something where you got a lot of light for a long period of time is it is it going to have a, a detrimental impact i guess that's probably not a very satisfactory answer so if i if i have to pick one i think that the the short burst of lots of light for one period of time is going to have a longer lasting impact um, than kind of the like really dim light constantly. Right on. And actually getting to that, you said something I found very fascinating. The idea that um, if you've got a small dribble of light coming into your growing area, whether it be indoor or outdoor, that so long as it's, you know, a low amount, that that could become, if you will, the new normal. It reminds me of, of what, you know, shooting photography and you set the white balance on a camera. Yep. It's like, okay. hey, th this is what light is today, camera, right? And so if you do have a tent in your living room and you're a patient and you're, you know, you're just doing what you can to grow your medicine. And if you have an imperfect tent, if you've got a low level of light that goes in there regularly, your plants are just going to go, okay, this is what night's going to be for us. So let's do our night stuff when it gets to yep. this point. That's right. Huh. That's right. 
they'll I, acclimate that's to it super, now. That's super interesting, Robert. <laughs> now, I want to make sure that 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 doesn't mean like, oh, you could just kind of crank on the the ambient lights as long as you're doing the standard practices to make that that environment pretty dark. Um, that's that's kind of what you what you want to do. It it doesn't give you freedom to to just keep the lights on um, around your plants. Uh, you definitely want to try to make it as dark as you possibly can. But but given that, um, it'll absolutely know what the threshold is. It'll acclimate to to that um, that low light level. I've never heard anybody say anything about the light cycle and how it may impact plants during a full moon, right? I mean, I understand a little bit about the the biodynamic stuff from from those folks about, you know, full moons. But um, as far as there being, you know, air quotes, all of this light uh, during a bright night, um, is that, re I mean, we experience it, you know, as human animals as a bright night and because we can see and that makes us feel safer. But does a bright moon night really uh, impact the plants at all? No, no, not at all. That's that's way below threshold. Um, you know, that's like 0 0.001 lux on a full moon. Um, you know, there is really what we're talking about. I mean, even you go outside and you see streetlights. Um, there is evidence of, you know, trees that are right next to that streetlight will have a, a significant impact. But the ones that are, you know, kind of some distance away, those light levels, just kind of think about that light level. Mm -hmm. That's not impacting. That's below the threshold of what of what that plant is seeing. And of course, back to the, the original point, when it sees that every single day, it acclimates and goes, all right, yeah, this is this is my nighttime scheme. Right on. I follow this. All right, good. So one more question before we go to our first commercial break. You know, um, some indoor growers use a green headlamp to work during the dark periods and other growers are all like, no, that's totally bullshit that like if you even if you use green lamp, it is interrupting the the dark period. So so you're the scientist is, is using a green headlight lamp legitimate tech or is that a myth? Well, so what a green headlamp will do is if you're trying to assess the plants and, and uh, see how they're doing, they're going to reflect that um, green better. Um, so you could get a sense of what's going on with a lot less light. Um, so it has to be a really, really dim green light. If it's a super bright green light, then, you know, you're you're absolutely getting giving them that bright burst of, of light um, at a time that could actually um, throw off their um, their circadian rhythms and their, their night phase. So I think that it is a good idea as long as you're not blasting those headlights. Um, and the re the main reason is because you're, you're using the spectral reflectance of that plant. Um, the fact that it's reflecting a lot of that green light, um, it's using a lot of it, but it's reflecting the most of it back. And you'll, if what you're trying to do is see the plant, you know, assess, an issue and then go away. Uh, you want to use as little of it as you possibly can to make sure you can do that, um, um, do it good enough and then go about, you know, go about your other business. Um, so it's not a fail safe. It's not going to not interrupt that plant. Um, it absolutely can do that. Um, but the green light helps you see that plant a little bit better using the least amount of light you possibly can. All right. That's interesting. All right. So let me see if I can break that down to two rules of thumb for everybody. So would it be correct if I were to say 
um, if you're going to use any light, green is a good choice, but you want to use as small amount of it as um, you can and only use it in a small area like with a headlamp in contrast to I've even seen people using green flood lamps in their grow mm. at night so that they can, you know, clean and, and things like that. Whereas that, that's a terrible idea because the intensity right. is, um, more and longer. Green is not a magical color spectrum that doesn't interrupt sleep. That's right. Huh. That's absolutely right. Yep. Right on. Cool. Well, thank you very much for that, Robert. We're going to go ahead and take our first short break and be right back. You are listening to Shaping Fire, and my guest today is lighting scientist Robert Solaire. There are lots of good seed makers out there. Every once in a while, someone becomes legendary. The Mendocino, California cannabis breeder called Mandelbrot is one of these people. Mandelbrot was also known as Ra's Truth, and his cultivars are known as the foundation for the Emerald Triangle's world-famous gasoline-scented terpene profile. Back in the day when it was really hard to find quality genetics and education, Mandelbrot was advocating for organic growing techniques and providing exceptional seeds that would sell out as soon as they hit the shelves. Mandelbrot lived too short a life, dying in 2015. But while he was with us, he created several connoisseur-level cannabis masterpieces like Oil Spill, The Truth, and Royal Kush. No matter if you approach growing cannabis more as a toker or a breeder, you will find something that delights you in Mandelbrot's selections. Because while some strains are better to grow or to smoke, Mandelbrot's creations excel in every category, and that's why people keep talking about them even today. Emerald Mountain Legacy continues the Ra's Truth tradition by preserving these coveted genetics for future generations, unchanged, as they were originally created in the mid-2000s. Emerald Mountain Legacy also creates tasteful, modern crosses to Mandelbrot's classics. These lines, worked by Mandelbrot's brother Ben, furthers their family's genetics in a spirit that Mandelbrot himself would approve of. Check out the Emerald Mountain Legacy Instagram and website to see photos of these plants and learn more about Mandelbrot and his infamous strains. Emerald Mountain Legacy seeds are available online from seed banks and distributors, including Labyrinth Seed Company, The Regenerative Seed Company, and Pure Sativa. Emerald Mountain Legacy, keeping Mandelbrot's legacy alive. Pre-rolls have come a long way since the early days of normalization. When you choose Saints Joints, you are smoking all-flower, top-shelf pre-rolls with terpenes that will sculpt your high in a way that dry, old pre-rolls just can't. Whereas most brands release pre-rolls as an afterthought, for the last five years, Saints Joints has focused on their line of exotic, curated joints. And while some companies just chase the hype strains, Saints Joints goes deeper, searching out hard-to-find strains, unexpected crosses, and nearly forgotten land races and classics. And some hype ones, too. Not only does a joint from Saints smoke incredibly well, they have fine-tuned every step of the process so you don't get runs in the paper, the joint is just the right density to have a nice pull, and the joint stays lit, even if you get a bit chatty. Saints joints boxes are works of art and will spark conversation when you pull them out at a party. Saints award-winning boxes change with every release, feature edgy outsider art, and often raise awareness of important issues like equal rights. Saints boxes are so desired that many collect them and display them in their homes. Ask your bud tender for Saints joints and have a premium joint experience. 
Now, if you are a licensed cannabis cultivator, I have an extra message for you. Saints is looking for partners in legal cannabis states to expand the availability of the Saints Joints brand. Do you grow exceptional cannabis flower but are less excited about all the effort, cost, and risk of launching your own brand? Saints Joints may be just the partner you are looking for. Already established in California, Washington, and Oklahoma, and recognized by Entrepreneur Magazine and Green Entrepreneur as a cannabis industry leader, the Saints Joints brand will set you apart in your home market. The best thing I can recommend is for you to visit their Instagram at Saints Joints and look at their patented drawer design boxes. Become that brand everyone is talking about without having to build it from scratch. Check out the Instagram at Saints Joints and then visit saintsjoints.com to find out more. If you listen to Shaping Fire and you grow your own cannabis, chances are high that you are very particular about the inputs you use for growing. People like us painstakingly self-educate on cannabis nutrients and techniques so we can cultivate the best tasting and cleanest flowers possible. And when we go to purchase those nutrients, we want to be sure that our supplier shares our values and is providing exceptional quality. This is why I recommend buildasoil.com to my friends who care about quality. Build a Soil empowers organic growers to do their best work by sourcing and shipping only the finest cannabis growing supplies. From organic inputs, soils, soil testing and pots, to lights, growing tents, sprayers, and cover crops, Build a Soil founder Jeremy Silva doesn't just stock his store with what's available. He goes deep to personally vet each product for quality and determine that there isn't a better version of the product that he could be selling. Because of this arduous process, you know that your options on buildasoil.com have been carefully curated to create the results you are looking for. Not only that, but the Build a Soil way is a philosophy that will permeate your interaction with the company. From website design to pricing and shipping to after-purchase support, Jeremy and his team always strive to do their best and give you the best customer service in the business. Check out buildasoil.com today for top-tier quality cultivation supplies and a friends and family buying experience. And check out their educational videos and extraordinary social media while you're there too. Quality organic growing supplies at buildasoil.com. Welcome back. You are listening to Shaping Fire. I am your host, Shango Lose, and our guest this week is lighting scientist Robert Solaire. So, Robert, you know, during an interview with soil educator Jeff Lowenfels, he suggested that sunlight has a very powerful effect on the soil microbes and soil life generally. It isn't just the plants that's taking up the light. It's actually the soil and, you know, everything that's living in it that is also taking in the light. And and he continued to say that this is one of the reasons why indoor cultivation pales when compared to outdoor generally, because the sun is so much more intense that it has... I don't know, a deeper reach into the soil, I guess I'll say. So, you know, what is it in sunshine that provides, you know, life to the soil and how difficult is that to attain nowadays with lights indoors? Yeah, I, you know, I would think um, any of those benefits, um, you know, it could come from the the penetration, um, but I would probably Dan, to guess that it has a lot more to do with um, the spectrum. So, you know, indoor lighting um, has 
the opportunity, you know, to do whatever. Um, but, but for energy efficiency, it's always putting all the energy, at least um, the energy efficient ones, LED specifically, uh, will put all the energy in the PAR region from 400 to 700 nanometers. You know, the sun puts out stuff, you know, from 300 nanometers, you know, on up. Um, so there's stuff in the UV, there's stuff in, in the infrared spaces, um, and the interaction of those things um, with sunlight uh, and daylight is is probably pretty uh, profound. So I would probably stand to guess that um, that it has more to do with the the idea of um, you know it could be a circadian um, component of, of temperature, but probably also you know the far reds um, and the ultraviolets that come from that that solar exposure that that's going to have the impact on microbes. And I would probably say that that doesn't mean that interior lighting is inferior. It just means that we got to get smarter about how we do interior lighting because we could absolutely recreate any of those spectrums. We could create far reds, we could create uh, UVA, UVB. Um, so it, it really just comes around to um, playing around and, and really getting into the research of what we could do to to kind of find out what those what those benefits are. Yeah, that's interesting. And I, and you know it, it's been, it's taken me a long time to come around to this idea that it really depends on what you want for your output. I mean, there's crappy outdoor and there's crappy indoor, right? And I've had good indoor and I've had good mm -hmm. outdoor, but in the end, it's it's what you're actually looking to produce. And if and if you can find a combination of, uh, you know, a, a, you know, an appropriately efficient indoor light that can sustain the proper, you know, microbe life and also uh, give the plant what it needs. You may not need the entirety of the sunshine spectrum, but there's okay. no, there's no doubt that when you're outside that, you know, there's there's all the spectrum you need and more for your plants. So there, there's some kind of combination between, you know, the the knowledge of which parts of the spectrum help sustain microbe life in the rhizosphere and in along the, the top layers that the light can penetrate. And also, yep. you know, I guess just bang for your buck, right? Like if, if, if the goal is to produce a, you know, a, a good tasting, good looking plant that thrives and resists pests, we may, we may be able to do that without the entire spectrum of the sun. That's right. And, and I, and, and you hit on a good point there is that, you know, as someone who, you know, makes lights, you know, you could make a light with all these things, um, but it's going to cost you a lot more um, to have that, that capability. And, you know, you're going to give up efficiency. So, so really, if you wanted UV light for your soil, you know, get like a supplemental UV light, UV LED light or a, a fluorescent tube and put it on the soil and test it out and see what, what you get out of it. Um, I think that there are things you could do, kind of add-on features that you could you could throw on to test stuff out and and really kind of see what what is going to work for your individual grow. I think that's probably the most important thing is to for us to all kind of be scientists um, with what we're doing. Well, I appreciate you saying that. I mean, this show is very in favor of citizen scientists, and it's funny because sometimes I'll have you know either guests on the show or or scientists I'll meet at conventions or whatever and they they really don't like the you know 
the regular folk messing, messing with the science. And they're like, ah, you just, you know, just read the white papers and do what we say, you know? Um, but especially when it comes to cannabis, when for so long, all of us growers were on our own, um, because, you know, good educated folks like you were, you know, were not available to us. Right. And so, um, uh, I appreciate the fact that, you know, you encourage us to experiment as well. Um, and speaking of experimenting, you know, I was in, in preparation for this interview. Uh, I went and I, I watched all your, your prior interviews that I could find. And um, during an, uh, in one of your interviews, you mentioned that you have some secret sauce on using light to improve cloning success. And, and during that interview, the interviews blew, they blew right over it. But I'm all like, oh, that's totally what I want, the part of it I wanted to hear. So, yeah. so will you share yeah. that with us? Like, how can we better our, our cloning success um, with something about lights? Well, I think that um, it's, I think that most people kind of have a, an idea of what's going on and it's really kind of meeting the, the blue light thresholds. Um, you know, people will talk about, you know, they'll just use metal halide or they'll use cool white fluorescent to, to do this. Um, and really it's a matter of, of making sure that you meet the blue light threshold, because if you don't, we talked about this early on, if you don't have enough blue light, the, the plants will basically feel like they're, they're starved, they're in shade or something. And so they'll elongate trying to get more blue light until they meet this threshold. Um, and so, so it's really important to get a light that has that blue light that meets that blue light threshold. It's usually about uh, kind of rule of thumb is about 30 micromoles per meter squared of, of blue light um, is what's required. So if you're trying to put out, you know, 300 or 400 um, micromoles per meter squared, that means you're going to probably want about eight to 10 percent of blue light. Um, and so this is kind of where a lot of this stuff, if you had high pressure sodium, high pressure sodium only puts out about 5% blue light. So this is kind of where some of the, the ideas have stemmed from. But if you, if you figure out that threshold, which is generally about 30 micromoles of blue light, now you could really kind of maximize that spectrum for efficiency. And so once you maximize the efficiency, then you're going to get tremendous yields. Uh, because you could you could really kind of create something that has that spectrum meeting the threshold, but but putting all the energy in the high efficiency uh, photosynthetically active region. You would not be able to do this with with either the traditional lights, uh, you know, HPS, HPS or metal halide, right? You're going to need some sort of LED to do this nowadays, right? Yeah, yeah, you know. Um, there are manufacturers that'll talk about, you know, they've got a, a special high pressure sodium or something that has more, you know, more optimized for, for growing. Uh, but the reality is the spectral, the spectral power distribution of these things, the way that they put energy is, is pretty much the same. Um, HBS versus a different HPS, um, metal halide versus a different metal halide. Um, it's really only LED that has this almost infinite, well, I would say it is absolutely infinite modularity of and um, configuration of what spectrum you could possibly have. So for a cloning area, you could have exactly the right spectrum that you need. Um, for a um, vegetation area, exactly what you, um, the right spectrum that you need. Uh, for flowering, just the right spectrum that you need. And it all really kind of stems from a very specific blue light threshold. Um, it, it's all kind of the same. 
So the reason why uh, HPS works out well in a, in, a, in a flowering room is because the light levels are so high. If you're giving um, you know, 600 plus micromoles per meter squared, if 5% is blue, you're still hitting that threshold of 30 micromoles of blue. Um, so that's, that's why it still works there. Um, if you were to use lower light levels than that, then you actually start seeing morphological effects and, and not good ones. Um, bad ones. They start getting um, um, lanky or leggy, if you will. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So I know that I'm about to suggest a really janky hack, but um, I've seen it. And so I'm probably going to ask you, you know, I've seen people have uh, HPS lights and they, they read something that they needed to increase their blue. And so they took those, you know, the, the, like the lighting, the blue lighting gels from like a rock, you know, like a stagecraft, like, like going mm. to see a band or something. Mm -hmm. And, and, and they will put one of those, you know, over that. And they're like, look, I just covered up 20% of my light with blue. I just got a bunch more blue. Is, is that science? No, no, not no, at all. I mean, if you, if you didn't, so you get, um, you know, if you didn't get 30 micromoles of blue uh, without the filter, the filter just remove it subtracts. It doesn't add anything. Oh, it's the opposite uh, direction even. So, so yeah, <laughs> it's, it's shifted or it's removes the, a lot of the red component out there, but your light levels have just dropped significantly. So um, I, I'd love to find someone where that actually worked, but that that's not going to work. That is, that is uh, that is not a good idea. Right on. Well, you know how it is with bro science, right? I mean, you know, it's kind of it's kind of the the other side of the coin to being a citizen scientist, right? It's like you know, trying a bunch of stuff is great, but then also you know, a lot of the stuff that had been handed down from us from our you know from our mentors doesn't pan out long term. <laughs> yeah, 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 for sure. So I know a lot of your work uh, with light involves humans. And, um, and it was actually really interesting to listen to your interviews about, you know, human lightings and circadian rhythms. And then also then to hear you talk about the same thing in plants. So I thought that was pretty cool. But, you know, cultivation employees spend a lot of time under a wide range of lights from, you know, from classic HPS and metal halide to LED. And, you know, now even some folks are, are spending for the plasma lights. So what impact does working under these sorts of artificial lights have on the humans that work below them? And I'm, I'm assuming that we can't just group them all in one category. So like go category by category, if you will, because lots of cultivators listen to this show. And I think they'd be curious to know what the lights they work under may be doing to their, to their human. Yeah. Well, I would say that, um, generally speaking, from a from a human circadian um, standpoint, um, I guess that most people aren't aren't very well educated on this. But you know, there's a lot of talk about blue light and its effect on on our sleep. Um, but basically, there is a newly discovered photoreceptor that drives our circadian rhythms, and um, and really, what the problem is is not so much the these grow environments, but the, the regular dim lit office uh, environment. So we really kind of need to have brighter days and darker nights in, in the built environment. Um, if you're in a grow space and, and, and you're getting, you know, what, call it, you know, six, 700 micromoles per meter squared, that's a ton of light. You don't, 
you don't need to uh, be convinced the fact that that is a ton of light. So as if you are working a day shift in those spaces and you're getting a ton of that light, um, that is a fantastic way to get the dose that you need of, uh, of light for your day. Now, if you're on a shift work schedule where you're going in after hours, um, that light could absolutely destroy your sleep. Um, if that's a time that you're supposed to not be getting, you know, just like what we talked about before, plants could get altered, um, their growth could get altered, um, that could completely throw off your circadian rhythms, um, making it really hard to to um, to sleep that night, but also the next three or four nights afterwards as a result of it. It's kind of like um, that will be enough light to shift you to another time zone um, up to three hours later. So, so that is something that could dramatically impact your sleep. So if you're getting that light exposure, um, what I would actually recommend, which is pretty simple, if you're doing it after hours, there are blue blocking glasses that exist. Um, you can buy them anywhere. And um, actually, we got some friends at, at True Dark that make, make some really good ones um, that block out all the blue light. Um, that would be a really good approach to, to um, protecting yourself from getting too much of that daytime exposure at a time that you don't want to get it. Right on. So let me unpack that a little bit. So, so I think you're saying that if, if you're under all that light during your regular day, daytime, let's say nine to five shift, you're actually winning because, mm -hmm. um, you're getting a ton of light. Uh, you know, you will not need a seasonal effectiveness disorder light box. Like you're getting right. all of that at work. And you're getting it at the right time in relationship to your sleep cycle so that when you go to sleep, you'll be good to go to sleep. Yep. And, and, and then, but if you, if your second shift in the afternoon and you're still hoping to sleep at night, you're kind of jacked because it's going to okay. shift you off by three hours and disturb your night. But let's say you're working the night shift. If you work the night shift and you're sleeping during the daytime, so your whole life is upside down, will you be in good shape again? Because again, you, while you might be on an artificial sleep cycle that's not in jibe with the planet, um, you're actually set resetting your own circadian rhythm to night shift and you'd actually be okay again. Yeah. So that, that's a, that's a great question. I mean, it's, it's, it's the quandary that has plagued, um, pretty much all shift work in all industries, oh. um, which is, you know, that's great. We could totally do that. And, and in this case, you'll absolutely shift. Now the problem is what happens when you like live your normal life on your off days and stuff like that. Yeah. Because now maybe you're aligned with that, that night shift. Um, but then you go out and normal life has a regular sun that goes at a different time. So now the sun is the thing that completely throws off your schedule. Um, so, so again, it could be the exact same thing. You wear those glasses um, when you go out in the sun um, to try to, to try to minimize the disruption that the, the solar cycle is gonna have on you. But really, um, from a health and wellness standpoint, what you wanna do is try to create that same pattern, same wake up and sleep times over and over again. And unfortunately, for some people, that means you're, you're kinda lo looking like a vampire yeah. um, on your off days. So the, the protection mechanism in all scenarios is to have some sort of blue blocking glasses to try to 
to try to make it so that light exposure at the wrong time doesn't doesn't throw your sleep cycles off kilter. While we're talking about um, glasses and, and the eyes, um, you know, I don't spend a ton of time under cultivation lights, but I know when I go and I get tours and stuff and the tour goes especially long that when I leave, sometimes my eyes feel tired, like they've been worked too much. And, um, and I'm curious what, you know, being under intense light like that as a full-time job might degrade the eyes. Um, are these, are these spectrums that we're growing under potentially dangerous for the eyes or is it just that I'm not used to that intensity? And so when I go in it for a little while, it tires my, my eyes out. Yeah. Uh, it's, so I think that the, um, the bigger thing is it's not the intensity, it's not the spectrum, it's really kind of more the the gradient or the contrast. It's you have a lot of bright and dark and your eyes are constantly trying to adjust to those. If you think about being outside, you know, it's usually you're usually either shaded or you're, you know, in this bright, you know, ubiquitously bright space. So it's nothing about the it's not nothing about the intensity. And it's nothing really about the spectrum that's that's particularly harmful. What's causing this fatigue is this con- that your eyes are constantly going from a bright spot to a dark spot, and it's trying to acclimate to these multiple uh, locations. And and there's a little bit of you know, your eyes aren't aren't acclimated to to that. So there's a little bit of that. But we know from the visual science standpoint that high contrast ratios, like you know, it's just like when you when you watch it when you're watching TV at night and all the lights are off, it it could be you know kind of glary and, and off putting, but you just put a little bit of ambient light on and it makes that screen a lot more comfortable to see. A lot of it has to do with the contrast ratios of light and dark that you see. So if I understand that right, what you're suggesting is that actually it's the my like my my pupils are tired. That muscle yep. or whatever it is that me- that mechanism in my eyes, it's 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 opening and closing so much. So it's closing when I'm directly under the light, but then it's opening so when I go away from the light for a minute to take something off of a shelf and bring it back to the light. Now it's back under. So it's it's that back and forth that's making my eyes tired. That's right, and that and, that's super and cool. Wow. There's like a um, huh. there's a con, you know there's actually a lot more fatigue on the cones itself because uh, it's called lateral inhibition, which is um, the contrast. It it amplifies a signal when it's contrasted against darkness. So it's um, it you're you're really giving your your cones in your eye a, a roller coaster of uh, of emotion. So it's a combination of that. Uh, and the pupil, um, your irises are kind of going, going back and forth. So we talked about the the true dark glasses for people, you know, to help with their circadian cycle. What what, what kind of a recommendation do you have for people who work under lights, and so they have this experience of going back and forth from the bright environment to the darker environment, and so their their pupils are potentially getting tired at work. Is there is there a hack for them? Yeah, I mean, it should be just glasses. I mean, you want so like um, the same kind of thing. Are we trying to cut out the blue, or is it a different no, kind of glasses? No, in, in like fact, the Method Sevens or something. Uh, I'm 
I'm not sure if I know the method oh. sevens. What what do those do? Oh, so they, they're just often used for uh, for folks, and not only to to darken the eyes, but um, from what I understand about the technology, it's 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 taking out. Uh, particular spectrums. Uh, the only the, the time that I ex- I experience it most is when I'm trying to take photography in a grow mm-hmm. and I get those um, those black bars on the photographs. Ah. And, and so, um, I, while I've not used the Method Seven glasses, I actually do use the Method Seven lens on my camera. So, um, it sounds like we may have waded into an area that that. Um, yeah, so, that we're less so, familiar with. But uh, I think that what's interesting, those black bars are actually just a, um, it's the DC ripple on your electrical current that interferes with um, with the camera exposure. Usually, uh, I've seen on like iPhones, and all you have to do is kind of change the uh, aperture exposure and it'll, it'll kind of wipe out. I think iPhones really kind of fixed that in software recently. Um, but that's that's actually a really really interesting phenomenon on ripple current in your lighting system. Um, it it's nothing wrong with anything that's going on, but it's it's a it's just a conflict between the two electrical devices. But um, I would say back to the main question is what you do to try to if you're going on that back and forth is really just try to have overall intensity glasses if you can. I don't think trying to filter out any spectrum. So that blue light is going to is what drives your your uh, what's called a sustained pupil constriction. Um, so you probably don't want to have like a blue blocking glass uh, because you know while that keeps your eye open, it's also you know letting a lot of that that light come in. Um, so so that's not good. Um, you really just want to lower the light level. So what you're seeing in your office and what you're seeing in the grow space are close to the same. So most most standard off-the-shelf glasses will cut 90% of the light level. Um, and that's probably what you want to do there. Would then, even though it certainly would increase the the price of the the operation, just for the for the just for the scientific basis, would it would it then also make sense to let's say that you're in a warehouse and you've got you know this, some part of it that is the artificial lighting for grows? Would it also make sense to pick up the you know the ambient lighting of the entire space so there's less contrast? Just like your example of oh, yeah. watching television yeah, yeah. in the dark is not yep. like the greatest idea. Like perhaps the whole warehouse shouldn't be black except for the grow area. Yeah, yeah. That, I mean that that is that's a great idea as well to to try to um, minimize those contrast ratios. I mean uh, I know this is a a, a non grow out. Um, uh, example, but like in in buildings, at least well designed ones, they'll actually put. If you have windows, they'll put light on the on the walls in between those windows to try to make sure that that's as br- that wall in between the bright windows is as bright as it can be to minimize that contrast ratio. Wow, that's interesting. Uh, you know, it's 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 it. I bet you it's only a matter of time before we start to see, you know, OSHA regulations around how bright the ambient environment in cultivation warehouses have got to be just for the health of the employees. Yeah, yeah, I think that's uh, that's interesting. I mean, I would say because 
We also do some work with the Department of Energy um, that they would probably suggest that the glasses is probably the better solution. Than wasting um, all the extra electricity. Yeah, yeah that makes yeah, exactly. sense. Yeah. <laughs> all right, cool. Well, let's go ahead and take our second short break. Uh, we'll be right back. You are listening to Shaping Fire, and my guest today is lighting scientist Robert Solaire. In times like these, when so many cannabis companies are growing their flower in gigantic warehouses and fields using synthetic nutrients, it is good to know that there are authentic California heritage growers using natural farming techniques and sunshine to cultivate cannabis flowers for you. California has produced the best cannabis in the world for generations, and the idea that massively scaled industrial cannabis production could produce the same quality as small batch, lovingly cultivated flowers is just silly. Moontime Medicinals is located in Humboldt County on the lush South Fork of the Eel River watershed in the epicenter of the American cannabis heartland. Moontime Medicinals grows under bright California sun in greenhouses using only natural farming techniques like hugel culture, compost teas, whole food fertilizers, and fermented plant juices. Every part of their growing process plays its own part in nature, and nothing synthetic is injected into the process. The result is big, beautiful cannabis flowers with wide-ranging terpene profiles that taste like great cannabis should. If you live in California, ask your bud tender for Moontime Medicinals, and visit Moontime Medicinals on the web and Instagram. Moontime Medicinals is also available as part of the Redwood Roots family. Moontime's whole flowers appear in Redwood Roots curated joint packs alongside other heritage cannabis cultivators like Lady Sativa Farm, Ridgeline Farms, Humboldt Redwood Healing, and others. Moontime Medicinals, top shelf cannabis grown in harmony with nature. One of the reasons why no-till cannabis growing is so valued by farmers is because the mycelium networks in the soil remain established from year to year. And we know these fungal networks are essential because they are the nutrient superhighways that extend far and wide in the substrate to feed your plants. The trouble with growing in new soils or blended cocoa substrates is that it takes most of the plant's life just to create these mycelium highways. Dynamico endomycorrhizal fungi inoculant reduces that time and gets your plant eating a wider array of nutrients faster. And it's three times the concentration of the current leading brand in the U.S. at 900 propagules per gram of two fungal species selected specifically for cannabis cultivation. This new product called Dynamico is the result of 30 years of research and trials at the Volcani Agriculture Research Institute in Israel. It has also been vigorously trialed by cannabis and food growers across the U.S. since the product first arrived here last year. You may have already even heard about Dynamico by its original name, Dynamike. Now, Dynamico is available at grow shops and online in the United States for the first time. I love using Dynamico to both speed up the growth of mycelium networks in the soil, but also as a biostimulant to make clone cuttings more virile. You can see side-by-sides showing the comparative growth on their Instagram at Dynamico. If you demand reliable growing results and appreciate the importance of an active root zone in creating a thriving plant, I encourage you to check out Dynamico at Dynamico.com and find out where you can get yours. That's D-Y-N-O-M-Y-C-O dot com. Whether you are starting with new beds or pots, or if you want to add some zing to tired soil, choose Dynamico to maximize your plant's potential. 
Dynamico Endomycorrhizal Inoculant. Growing cannabis in greenhouses is taking over the cannabis industry. An efficient and effective blend of sunshine-grown terpene profiles and the controlled environment of indoor, greenhouses can be the best of both worlds. For many greenhouse operators, though, building their greenhouse before gaining insight into how cannabis greenhouses differ from ornamental crops can be the start of a world of hurt. Eric Brandstad and his team at Greenhouse Advisory Group have the experience and technical know-how to help you avoid these pitfalls. Eric Brandstad has been helping cannabis growers find locations, design, build, and equip their greenhouses for over a decade, first starting in Northern California, but expanding over the last five years to helping clients throughout the world. He has an impeccable reputation for both depth of knowledge and kindness in communication. You can hear Eric explain some of the challenges facing cannabis greenhouses and how to overcome them in episode number 41 of the Shaping Fire podcast. No matter where I go in the country, good people with smart backgrounds still are making the mistake of building without knowing cannabis, and it causes them to burn through capital and time fast. Everyone has their own failure point. For some, it is improper ventilation planning. For others, it is surface temperatures of the building or the plant's leaves or both. Some folks that build their greenhouse from scratch make really basic errors like placement of the greenhouse on the property or not understanding the natural environment where the greenhouse sits. Some have even built a decent greenhouse but are inefficient in their deployment of light deprivation techniques and never really hit their target yields. It's great when you learn from your mistakes, but it's even better when you learn from the mistakes of others. When you bring on Greenhouse Advisory Group, you will learn from the mistakes of their many clients, and you'll take advantage of the best practices developed by Eric Brandstad over his years of working with clients just like you. From location development to choosing a builder and tricking out your new greenhouse or retrofitting or rescuing your failing greenhouse, Eric will help you through it. Visit GreenhouseAdvisoryGroup.com to learn more and connect with Eric and his team. That's Greenhouse Advisory Group. Welcome back. You are listening to Shaping Fire. I'm your host, Shango Lose, and our guest this week is lighting scientist Robert Solaire. So, Robert, one of the things that I've heard you say a couple times in your other interviews is that, um, you know, people and plants see light differently. And that seems like the kind of phrase that you like kind of throw out there, but that there's a whole hell of a lot behind it. And so I just want to go on a little fishing expedition with this phrase that you use often. What do you mean by plants and humans seeing the light differently? Oh, yeah. I mean, so... I guess anyone who's familiar with early day LED light um, will show, you know, it's a purple light, right? So, or pink light, and it's just comprised of blue and red. Well, that's because plants, which are green, reflect green, um, see blue and red um, most efficiently. Um, and people actually see green most efficiently. So on, on a high level, so there are things that are, um, what people see, which are kind of lux or, or lumens, um, that's how we see light. This is how we quantify how bright something is. Well, plants, which use uh, PPFD, see things differently. But I think that it's even more complicated than that because when we talk about, say, comparing different light fixtures, like a high-pressure sodium light fixture or a metal halide or an LED, the way that those spectral compositions are, we'll see them um, maybe like we could have a metal halide that looks 
like we'll call it a 5,000 Kelvin um, color, which is very cool white light. And we could get an LED that matches it. And so they look, they could look the same to us, but the plants actually will look at those lights and they're very, very different. And so the, it's all about the spectral power distribution of how that all works out. That, that is really what you want to think about when you're deciding what kind of LED light or whatever kind of lighting technology you have um, to, that's going to work best for your grow. So um, when you look at hypersodium, that doesn't mean you need an LED replacement that looks the same. That means you, you, know, you might get better performance out of something that doesn't look the same. Um, same goes true with the, with the metal halide, is that what the plant sees and what we see are, are fundamentally different. And so we can't look at a light and say, oh, that's going to perform you know, really well or really poorly just because what my eye sees. And this is really true as we start getting into the infinite possibilities that LED light provides for us. So if we can't use our eyes to judge the spectrum, and while that makes like intellectual sense to me, um, you know, I've been in plenty of grow rooms where the cultivator has told me that, you know, that they're, well, for example, like bulbs get tired over time, right? And they'll tell me, oh, the bulb's getting tired. I can tell because the spectrum is different. And while, you know, I certainly defer to their experience and it's their grow room, is that enough of a subtlety and change of an old bulb changing spectrum that they will actually be able to see with this technology we have that our eyes? Um, so with the older technology, absolutely. A metal halide will change, uh, change its color once it gets quote unquote tired. Um, and that's a visible change that like, that, that's in that the spectrum a we can change. see. That is a visible change, and, and those changes will. Um, so, a a new metal halide versus an old metal halide um, will get a little bit of a shift, but that's not nearly as significant as what it's going to have versus an LED light spectrum. And so, what it comes down to is really kind of understanding the buckets of light that they have, how much percentage of blue light you have, um, how much percentage of red light you have. And so when you're thinking about it, you got to think about it in those terms. And it all comes back to kind of hitting this threshold of, you know, a certain number of blue. And this is really kind of what drives most of the morphological effects is I need, you know, again, rule of thumb, about 30 micromoles as my minimum of blue light. So when I measure light and when I think about how much light I'm going to put out there, you know, if I have 20% blue light, you know, that's probably going to do good enough. If I have 5% blue light, that's probably going to be pushing the boundaries of, of what I'm going to get. Um, and so, as I mentioned before, hypersodium has low amounts of blue. Um, metal halide has, you know, higher amounts of blue. Fluorescence will have higher amounts of blue. And LED could be absolutely anything. Um, it really depends on what you what you're trying to do and led is is much more of an engineered light source an engineered solution um, to try to bring the benefits um, of those other technologies but in a very targeted way that's giving the light on the plant the right spectrum that it needs um, at the right time and and just trying to to tailor that spectrum to what the plant needs and at the basically benefit of energy efficiency all right, so let's take this back one one step. So if um, 
if there are limits to the usability of our eyes to determine spectrum, um, for those of us who are not lighting nerds, um, what are the tools that a cultivator would use to measure these light attributes um, that the that the eyes cannot handle? So if you know you've got these, you know you've got buckets and you've got intensity. What are the tools of the trade, if you will, for those of us who don't spend a lot of time with lights? Yeah, so I mean, it's it's pretty simple. If you have high pressure sodium, th there are rules of thumbs. Metal halide is about fifteen percent blue. Um, high pressure sodium is about five percent blue, and so um, just think about it like that. And then if you're thinking about you know what LED is going to do to replace either one of those, think about what's going to have a similar blue light percentage as those two things five or 15%, and that's what you wanna match. And so when you go to um, any credible um, LED lighting manufacturer, that's the number that you wanna have. They should have published on there the percentage of blue light um, on their specification sheet. And that's what you need to think about, is if you're thinking about it for a, um, for a flower space where you're gonna have high pressure sodium normally, you wanna have at least 5% blue which the majority of them all do. And if you want to have um, something that is for a, a metal halide or a cool fluorescent space, you want to make sure that you're uh, north of 15%. So you actually took that in a different direction than I thought. I thought you, um, I didn't realize that, you know, I mean, I, I knew that the lights were sold with full spec sheets. I mean, I get that part, but I actually thought you were going to say, oh, we use these handheld technologies to, to measure the, the buckets of, of, you know, the spectrum. And then we go back and we just adjust our lights. But what I'm kind of getting the idea is, is that the spectrum, the spectrum is going to, on, on most lights, the spectrum is going to come hardwired. And so you want to buy the spectrum from, from, from the jump, from, from day one. It isn't like you're going to buy your light and then tune your spectrum for what you personally like in your grow. That's, that's right. I mean, there are ways that you could do it, but again, you're going to pay through the nose for it. Um, you know, those meters that, that can do it are, you know, a couple thousand dollars for, for a meter that, that could tell you what the spectrum is and then you don't really know what to do with it afterwards. Um, really, it comes down to very simply saying, okay, if this is, I just need to meet a minimum, minimum criteria so that things don't get weird in my grow. And so it's just a matter of looking at the spec sheet. And usually um, what I've seen is that every LED light has kind of hit the threshold of what the minimum need is minimum needs are for either one. You might come across one that, um, you know, doesn't have enough of the, the blue light content. Um, but by and large, they almost all do nowadays. Hmm. Well, it, it's, that's nice. That way it's a lot harder to screw up. That's for sure. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, um, so, 
as you and I talked about before, before we got going today, you know, I do a lot of work with patients and, and, you know, while, while a lot of folks are, you know, focused on commercial cultivation, uh, my, my, my passion will still always be with like these little home growers trying to give themselves relief. And it is incredibly common for them to have these like like these little plastic greenhouses or hoop houses where they've they've you know taken some kind of skeleton of wood and they wrap it around in plastic and um you know you know I know from interviewing um Eric Brandstad, the greenhouse specialist, that, you know, at the very least, we want to use four-year horticultural plastic. Um, but a lot of people are still using plastic sheeting, you know, just from Home Depot, thinking that, well, it keeps the plants dry. Um, would you tell, teach us a little bit about what, um, what the different plastics will do to the light when it hits our plants? And maybe even more importantly, um, how we will experience that in the plants that we're growing for our medicine. Yeah. So that's, that's a really good question. Um, so generally speaking, pl plastics, um, are designed, plastics don't do well with UV. Um, and we kind of talked earlier, one of, one of the key benefits of sunlight is the UV that's going on the, the other stuff that's happening out there um, in the in the non-visual region. So a horticulture grade lighting is going to is going to do better. Um, I'm sorry, a horticultural grade plastic is going to do better. Is going to understand that those far ends of the spectrum are important and try to allow them through. Um, the cheaper um, plastics are not, and they are not going to consider what those ends of the spectrum are going to do for for the plant. Um, and generally they're going to be not, um, the best outdoor rated and what will happen, you'll notice that they'll start yellowing over time. Um, they'll start becoming very brittle. And so that yellowing is going to take a lot of the blue out of the spectrum. It'll drop the overall intensity, but it's going to take out all the UV, all the blue light. Uh, is the yellowing in the, is, is the yellowing in the plastic or in the plants? Uh, the, I'm sorry. Yeah. The yellowing is in the plastic. Oh, okay. Please continue. Yeah. Um, so the plastic will yellow and that that means it's attenuating more of the UV. It's attenuating more of the blue light. Um, and so it's um, so now the plant's not getting um, things that are vital for its um, for normal growth. Right on. That so I would strongly uh, advise to get a horticultural grade uh, plastic. I love it. That's that is the the decision rule that I was looking for there because you know how it is like when you're working with um, you know any kind of a home grower whether it's cannabis or vegetables there are so many variables and so many people don't have complete knowledge that you go and you see and you're like okay they've got they've got the they they have non horticultural plastic and their their plants are are not doing well, but it could also be because they screwed up some other variable, right? Sure. Um, yep. So it's good to hear without um, any question that not only does it make a difference, but it makes a big enough difference where you know it's definitely worth springing for the extra money to get the proper plastic. That's right. Yeah. Yep. Right on. All right. So hey, before we before we wrap up here, I wanna uh, I wanna ask you one question um, specifically about LEDs. So you know, um, you know, even though you're an LED expert, um, you know, I really wanted to have you on the show today more because you are a lighting and and horticulture scientist, and at the same time, um, 
you know, there's a big competition in our scene between LEDs and and the traditional light mediums, and um, you know, they're they're, they're kind of like street gangs. Like they do not play soft. Like people get <laughs> get angry if they are dedicated to HPS and and you do and put out any kind of LED content. And then on the flip, the LED people all find themselves you know much more sophisticated and educated, and they talk all this trash about the HPS people. And I'm all like. Like, hey man, I've had really kick-ass flowers of both, but I do know that LED has kind of just kind of come into its own, right? There, there's a lot That's of flowers right. over the last 20, eh, I'll say 12 years that, that I've had from LED that just, just didn't rock my world, right? And so as, as somebody who, you know, does LED engineering and, you know, but also understands the fundamentals and, and why people choose HPS. What are your thoughts on the threshold point? Like, have we passed that threshold point now where LEDs have gotten to the point with spectrum and intensity, um, efficiency of electrical usage and, and price comp competition where, even the most hardcore HPS people should start to like, like, you know, at least read some websites about the LED stuff because we've passed this threshold. Cause you know, I have now had LED flower that is fabulous. And, yeah. and while there's this whole secondary thing about electrical usage in, in my mind, I'm looking forward to the day where we can have solar powered indoor. Right. Yeah. And I, and I know we got, a, we got a while, we got to, you know, there's, there's some technologies that need to get developed, but, um, you know, I prefer growing outdoors because the sunshine is free, but yep. the day will come where we can do solar powered indoor. And so then, so then it's all going to be on the technology and it's going to decrease the, the question of efficiency will be out the door. So with that very significant and yet potentially convoluted setup, where do you see that threshold point is and have we passed it? Yeah. So the threshold point really was, can LED lighting serve as a thousand watt HPS replacement? And I think until just very recently, the answer has been no. And so um, what, I think that the majority of people who've kind of been naysayers of LED um, have either been burned um, from generations past uh, or um, they've just kind of heard about it or they've, um, they've, they've kind of got this stigma that it just can't put out the, the output. And anyone who's, um, who's said that, say, five years ago were 100% correct. Um, I think that the lighting industry did them well, some people in the LED lighting industry did themselves, um, just gave themselves a black eye by trying to say it was a thousand watt HPS replacement by, you know, putting a meter directly underneath it and going, see, you get the same light levels, but no one's thinking about what happens at 10 degrees, um, from underneath that, that, uh, light source. Uh, but now they have reached that threshold where they can, and, and it has been, you know, not everyone could do it. It's a, it's a thermal exercise to try to get um, all that heat out. Um, so, so there's a fundamental difference between how um, traditional lights work, um, like high-pressure sodium versus LED. Um, high-pressure sodium, it, you know, it has a certain amount of efficiency, and whatever else is waste heat is, is heat and it radiates that heat. 
LEDs are different because what is waste heat is actually conducted away. Um, sorry, do I need to go over that again? Did you hear my phone ring just now? Uh, no, no, I didn't. Okay, no, no. I apologize. No, no, we got it. Okay, um, so, and what happens is um, when um, <clears throat> when that heat is conducted away, it takes a, a certain amount of a thermal like device in order to get that heat away. Um, but what I could say uh, very certainly is that LED has been able to to hit that threshold and, and go over that hurdle of really truly being a thousand watt high pressure sodium replacement. Um, so there's, you know, uh, you know, I, I have a company and, and my company does it, but we're not the only one. So there are, you know, kind of these tier one manufacturers that can absolutely hit these thresholds. And if you, you know, if you were a naysayer, you know, you're a smart man. Um, but the time has come for LEDs to, to kind of hit, hit that threshold. And I would say if you're looking for a very specific threshold, um, if it could get over 1600 micromoles, um, per, per second, um, preferably 1750 micromoles per second, um, that is going to be something that you're going to have a really good experience with. Fantastic. That is a great answer. So Robert, our time is done. Thank you so much for all of this interesting information and some of the um, you know atypical insights that we don't usually hear when you know people are either talking about strictly the botany or strictly the light technology. Your uh, your ability to kind of weave those two together to provide some some answers that straddled both disciplines was really enjoyable. So thank you very much. Yeah, thanks for having me. I really had a good time. Excellent. So if you want to find out more about uh, the kinds of lights that uh, Robert uh, helps develop, uh, you can check that out at bioslighting.com. You can find more episodes of the Shaping Fire podcast and subscribe to the show at shapingfire.com and on Apple iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play. If you enjoyed the show, we'd really appreciate it if you'd leave a positive review of the podcast wherever you download. Your review will help others find the show so they can enjoy it too. On the Shaping Fire website, you can also subscribe to the weekly newsletter for insights into the latest cannabis news and product reviews. On the Shaping Fire website, you will also find transcripts of today's podcast as well. For information on me and where I'll be speaking, you can check out shangolos.com. Does your company want to reach our national audience of cannabis enthusiasts? Email hotspot at shapingfire.com to find out how. Thanks for listening to Shaping Fire. I've been your host, Shango Los. 